Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Growing up in Philadelphia during the 1940s, Ray Scott idolized the Harlem Globetrotters, whom he credits with introducing him to professional basketball in an era when it was predominantly a white spectator sport. So when he was drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 1961, he was already familiar with the black groundbreakers in the National Basketball Association. Figures like Earl Lloyd, the first black man to play the NBA game. Little did he expect, however, that just over a decade later, he'd become a coach and soon a basketball icon himself, as the first black coach to be named the NBA's Coach of the Year. In today's episode, Ray talks about his experiences as a player and coach and much more as he recounts in his newly published book, The NBA in Black and White, a memoir of a trailblazing NBA coach, player and coach. We'll talk about his own storied history, as well as those of other prominent black players of his time, including Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell, and the impact they had in transforming the game. Along with his favorite memories of as player and coach, Ray will tell us about his role in the creation of the modern NBA, through his contribution, among other things, establishing and helping to establish the NBA's Players Union in the 1960s. He'll also provide his perspective on the issues of racial discrimination and integration over the course of his lifespan, including his early involvement in the civil rights movement, meeting Martin Luther King, Mark Malcolm X, Coretta Scott King, and how he sees the evolving issues around race in sports and society today. And finally, I'll ask Ray to talk about how he transitioned from his NBA years into his own 45 forward life as a successful post-basketball career in business and social service. So now let's meet our guest, Ray Scott. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. It's so good to be here with you on this beautiful, rainy Detroit afternoon. <laughs> okay. Well, we've got, we, we got rid of our rain today, but we have, so we have some sunshine, a lot cooler though, but so yeah. fall is here. Yeah. So, so, um, so in starting, Ray, I, I just wanted to uh, mention that I, in reading the interview you did with the Detroit Free Press, uh, in which you told the reporter uh, that you had put off uh, your memoir until you were 82 because you just felt like you had so much more life to live. You wanted to make sure you didn't leave anything out of the book. So I just wanted to start off by saying, I- I'm glad you did write the book because I-, I have a good feeling you've got still got a lot more of life to live in your. In you. oh, thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. Well, actually, I will be undertaking writing another book. I, did, I never saw this coming. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're, we're just starting, uh, Charlie and I. We sat down and we had our post discussion of basketball, and we bo- we found that we both have a love of boxing, and I mean oh. a deep love of boxing because I'm a South Philly kid, and as you know, it boxing in Philadelphia yeah. is royalty. You know, from the time that I I came through and would see people like uh, Jersey Joe Walcott or Ike Williams, these are champions walking down South Street in Philadelphia. And uh, I used to go to gyms to watch boxers train when I was 12 years old. Um, I've always had that love uh, and that curiosity. 
while not being a very tough kid. I didn't go to, you know, I wasn't learning anything. I was just appreciating the art. And uh, so that's something that happened. But when this best thing started, then back when I was 82, just before the, the uh, pandemic, mm-hmm. I was, you know, looking for something to immerse myself in. And, mm-hmm. and my wife said, well, I got the perfect thing for you. Now's the time to write the book. Ah, excellent. That's where we started. Yeah. And so for the benefit of our, of our listeners, so Charlie is Charlie Rosen, right? Charlie yeah. Rosen. Yeah, he's right on right on the book. He gets his due credit. He's good man. We we dove in. Uh, we did tons of research. And that, the uh, for me, the most beautiful part of writing a book, in my opinion, is what you learn in terms of research. Yeah. Learn so much. I'm I'm so caught up now in appreciating the queen uh, in our in our history because the more I learn about the history of our world, the more I learn about myself. Yeah. And I've found so many avenues uh, into information uh, because of that. So, Ronnie, I'm I'm just having a good time researching and watching and listening. And I'm I'm in Scotland one day and. Then I'm back in London and then I'm in Michigan and, you know, I'm, I'm all over the world. Yeah. And it's a great thing for us. And, and I would encourage people, um, if, you, if you love to read, do the research. It is, you know, I, I put a lot of stuff in my book, uh, Ron, that people could look at and say, you know, I want to research this. Or, or I list mm-hmm. a lot of names, but it's giving people their due, but it's also letting you know as a reader you have the opportunity to look this person up and see who they really were or get information about them. And it just, in my opinion, it makes a great conversation. Uh, it, 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 and again, it gives you just, you satisfy some curiosities about your world and yourself. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I, I love hearing this. Uh, you know, we'll get into the book. And obviously, the book is a lot about your early life and how you, you know, helped transform the NBA. But I love hearing what, the way you talk now, which is you're still learning. You're still like, it's not just looking back at, oh, this is what I did. This is what happened. You're looking at it. You're looking forward. You're looking at what it actually thinking about what it meant. So you, you get some real opportunity to, to continue what I call, you know, um, lifelong learning. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And that's, see, that's what I encourage the fun of it. And that's, I tried to write the book that way. For instance, just, just pick out a gravitational point. Uh, When I sat down and said, we wanted to do this, I said, Charlie, this is how we want to do it. We want to do a, a, I want my, my world is a parallel world. Mm -hmm. Help you understand what, what I mean. Think about a kid in 1955 that hears about this murder, this grievous murder of this young kid, Emmett Till. Emmett Till, right. Right? So I'm listening to all the stuff about Emmett Till. He's 14 years old. Right. So now I go through all of the pulleys of that saying, that could be me. That could have happened to me. So I go from there. And uh, so this is 1956. And by the time, 55 actually, by the time we hit 1960, we shake up our world again because as a country, we elect our first Catholic, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Right. 
And so when we elect John Fitzgerald and everybody's talking about him being Catholic and so, so forth, I found the interest in what he was saying to me, Ray Scott, this, this, this kid sitting in Philadelphia at 20 years of age, just you know, coming into my, my votes and so forth. He's saying, we want the Negro race included in the forward identity of America. Mm-hmm. We want new frontiers. And I remember going, yeah, he's talking to me. And what happens a year later, I'm drafted into the NBA, a league that had been segregated, became integrated, and had brought in great superstars. And the great superstars that came in the 60s, if you think about it, Oscar Robinson, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and Elgin Baylor. Now, the NBA being a spectator sport, my goodness, what guys would you not want to spectate out of those four? Right. So oh, that, that die was cast. President Kennedy spoken out. I'm drafted into the NBA. So I'm seeing that parallel world from a locker room in the NBA and looking at the United States of America attempt to work through its most tumultuous period. Because now we're talking civil rights, voting rights, and by the end of that decade, a Vietnam War. And I mean, the ground is like moving and shaking under our feet. Yeah. In that from the perch of an NBA bench, locker room, newspapers, and radio, because that's what we were involved in. We weren't big, a big television country at that time. So it was so interesting. And as you know, we had talked about how interesting Philadelphia was. You know, think about Philadelphia with five schools that were of the five, uh, three or four, you could say, were, were segregated. They didn't have African-American players. And I was not recruited by any of those schools. Right. I wanted to go to Villanova, being a good Catholic kid. That's, <laughs> that's what John Fitzgerald would have wanted of me. But that time was so great. And then here I am, a Detroit Pistons. I didn't expect to be uh, an NBA player. And someone asked me and said, well, where were you doing the pomp and circumstance of being drafted in the NBA? And you see it now, it's on TV. Where was I? I was on a subway going from Brooklyn up to the Bronx, well, actually from 34th Street up to the Bronx to play a basketball game. And I happened, you know, we got the afternoon paper in New York. I get the afternoon paper, the post, and I'm reading the afternoon paper. And there I am discovering I was drafted in the NBA today. <laughs> yeah, everyone sort of assumes like now, right? You, you know, the TV screens are there. They're, they're, you know, the cameras in the family's home, you know. And there you are in the subway, you know. Uh, and, and tell, extend the story a little bit, Ray, because it's a good story about. So then you get drafted and then you, um, uh, your coach, you know, takes you, uh, to, you know, into, into, into Detroit and <laughs> tell the story about the dessert. I love this story. <laughs> because as a kid, I'm, I'm 22 years old. So I'm not discerning this moment as something that's very huge in my life. You know, a really big thing that just happened. And I go home, I leave New York and I go home and I'm happy and I'm, I'm a Detroit Piston and, 
you know, you could have been sending me to the minor leagues in Allentown or the Eastern League for, you know, all that you're thinking about because you're a kid. So Earl Lloyd says, I want you to, who was the guy that brought me in, by the way, right. brought me to Detroit in 1961. And he gave his word that he would do that. And I, it, it amazed me to this day that this man kept his word. Three men, two of them named Red, had me in their eyesight. One was Red Holtzman, the New York Knicks. He was the scout at the time. Earl Lloyd was the scout and assistant coach of the Detroit Pistons. Right. And Arnold Red Auerbach, who I played for at Cutcher's in, up in the Catskills. Hmm. He's who's going to draft me. Well, Earl Lloyd, true to his word, I came up first for the Pistons. I was drafted. And here I am on this plane headed for Detroit in my nicely made up suit and tie, uh, you know, going out to sign my contract. And I'm not thinking I'm going to get very much money. So here I am flying out to Detroit and I come out and uh, meet Earl. And he, you know, he takes me out to dinner and, and uh, this really great uh, emporium called the 20 grand and where the top entertainment in the Midwest all came and played. And so Earl and I leave the club, we have dinner, and I would go back to the hotel, and I didn't want to appear like a greedy kid, so I didn't order dessert. And I said to Earl, I said, Earl, I see here, you know, you're reading stuff, it says they have room service, and you could even order a dessert. And I said, do you think I might be able to order, you know, an apple pie? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks, oh, what? He said, you can order a whole nother meal if you like. You understand, you're this team's number one draft pick. You're, you're, you're one of the top picks in the country. And I just, I didn't get that. And so I had, here I had this wonderful apple pile of bone. I'm going like, I finally made it. I made it. I'm sitting at the Sheridan Cadillac in Detroit, Michigan, in a very nice room. And it's only, only, I'm the only roommate in here. There's no, mm. not else going to come in. And I'm going like, this is so great. And I remember flying home. And Ron, I got a two-year contract the next day, $25,000. Wow. $1,000 of that $25,000 was a bonus. Now, imagine a 22-year-old kid who literally left home probably with 5 or $10 in his pocket, going to Detroit and coming back to your home with a thousand dollars. Boy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was right. Yeah. I was forward with the rest of America. Yeah, yeah. Think of the money then compared to now. You right. know, yeah. I, I was just like so grateful and so thankful, and I had an apple pie a la mode. <laughs> Yeah, so so you came in in the early days of integration into the NBA, but just to give some context, these these as you po pointed out earlier, these were tough times. You know, this the '60s. I just was looking at it and going, "Oh my God!" So, you know, so you're you're drafted in in '61. You know, in '63, uh, Kennedy is assassinated. Medgravers is assassinated. Uh, 64, three civil rights workers are killed in Mississippi. Emmett Till, uh, you know, Malcolm X, you know, King and Kennedy in, in 68 riots. I mean, this was this was a rough time. So what was it like 
playing in the NBA at that time. I know, I know that, you know, people now it's hard to believe. Right. But initially I guess, I think, I guess it was just before you got there or, you know, there were like quotas for, there were still quotas yeah, there for were, black players. They had like two or three a team. Mm-hmm. And funny because to me, when I did my research again, I was left. I want to say a goth because in the NBA, when you said you were going to the outer reaches of the United States, you were going to St. Louis. <laughs> really, that was the frontier. That's why the Golden Arches are there. That was the frontier. And um, so when we went to St. Louis, you know, there were places we couldn't go because we couldn't eat there. We, you know, doors were, were closed in our faces as African-American young men, the basketball players. And I just, you know, remembered, I said, man, this is, this is something in St. Louis. This is sad. But I picked St. Louis because I don't want to mislead the people that are listening to us and have them think that the basketball team was this way. Because it really, it was, but again, like the NBA, it changed course. And I tell people, by the mid-60s, the St. Louis Hawks, this awful place in St. Louis, to go and play the Kiel Auditorium, where you were called awful, awful names. And uh, it was, it like, it changed because their general manager or their chief scout, Marty Blake, and it's, it's an unbelievable statistic. Yeah. They had six players on their bench that were African-American. Yeah. But Ray, let's hold this thought. We're going to take a short break now. Uh, When we come back, much more, talking much more with Ray Scott. So folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Ray Scott, 
uh, an iconic professional basketball player from the Detroit Pistons, uh, the first black coach to be named NBA Coach of the Year. And we're talking with him about his great new memoir. Uh, and before the break, uh, we were talking to Ray about some of his experience, early experiences as, as a player. And we we had reached St. Louis. <laughs> and We were talking about, uh, you know, it was a, it was an interesting uh, and sensitive time in many ways. Yes, the, as the 60s were, and, and that's good, interesting and sensitive. I like those two words. Uh, but I was talking about the St. Louis and how unintegrated they were, but how integrated they were. Hmm. And, it, and it was not a calamity um, because they, when they had uh, 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 Zelmo Beatty and Bill Bridges and and uh, Paul Silas and and uh, Chico Vaughn and 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 John Barnhill and, and uh, Freddie Lacour, they had this makeup of six guys, and I was peering at their bench and I go like, "Do you see what's going on here?" I said to one of my teammates. He said, "No, what?" I said, "They got six black guys down there," and St. Louis isn't noted for their love of African American African American players in the NBA. And yet they, they lead the NBA by far, except for the Boston Celtics, hmm. who had Casey Jones, Sam Jones, Bill Russell, Sat Sanders. They, you know, and Willie Knowles, they, they played at one time in St. Louis. They played five African-American players for the first time in the 60s. Right. Those things that were, you know, just as a kid that was observing stuff and growing up, I'm like, man, everything is not what it seems. Right. You right. know, and that's why I'm asking people, please pay attention to what is around us. Like, even as we celebrate the queen, pay attention to, to what is around us. I just posted pictures not too long ago of the queen with Duke Ellington, and this is just an aside, but mm -hmm. she's. Ellington, she's with Muhammad Ali, and she's with Nelson Mandela. This is the queen. So you're saying, why would I watch the queen? Why would I not watch the queen? I want to know about her. I want to look at things she's done. And that's the same way I was looking at my world. And I didn't know it at the time. In the 60s, all of these things are going on. And and uh, as you indicated, and, and, and I did want to mention those kids that were murdered in Mississippi, Goodman, Mickey Goodman, and uh, Goodman and Schwerner. Mm -hmm. uh, they were and great kids that left New York, left the safety of New York to go and and get people the right to vote. You know, that's that to me. I mean, that's sainthood stuff in the Catholic Church. That's saint. That's being living a life of having love for your fellow man in your heart. Right. So that's the period we were living in, that with all of this evil that could exist, look at all the good. Right. All right. these kids were great kids, and I'll never forget it. We had a lady from Detroit named Viola Liuzzo. She was murdered in Mississippi, driving people to vote. Wow. And that's the only reason she was there. And I'm friends with her daughter to this day. Wow. You know, wow. they're just very special people. And the kids don't know, you know, my mom's going south. What's she doing? And this is in the 60s again. She's going south for the love of her fellow man. So I'm sitting on a basketball bench again, seeing all of this. And that's why I came 
to the book, Ron. I said, man, I've seen, I've witnessed, I've felt it. And this is just, it's too great to not have in our history. And it's all, even if you're a basketball fan, it's relative to basketball. But as basketball people, we're sitting on that bench together, looking at the world and what it was. Right. Yeah, I think these are really important stories, uh, Ray. You know, I I, I I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, I mean, I cover lots of 45 forward issues. And, and uh, you know, obviously, as you get older, you know, there are considerations about your, you know, your assets and your estate. What do you do for your kids? And, you know, for me, it's what's what's the mental estate you're leaving behind which is all your memories and your thoughts and your experiences so what you're contributing to me is the essence of what we leave behind these and so i really appreciate that that you've taken time to do this and you're going to do it again <laughs> your next book but um so i just wanted to transition a bit ray so your next big uh, transition was as a as a coach which was not very common either as a black coach and 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 not only that you become the coach of the year what was what was that like tell me about that well that was interesting because i reti- i was i retired with the virginia squires mm-hmm. uh, and as you know how there's always that person in your office or in your vestibule of thoughts or they say i'm to retire well that person in my thoughts for me was dr j julia serving kid out of new york again Long Island kid, Roosevelt High School. I'm, I, he comes to the Virginia Squires. None of us know who he is. We just see this kid with this big afro and these <laughs> big feet and these big hands, and he can run like the wind and he can jump over the building. And we're going like, wow, this guy's really good. So as old timers, Neil Johnson, my teammate, George Carter, my teammate, and I, we sat down together and we said, uh, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> uh, we got a problem because we literally shared the minutes off of our bench together. And this guy comes along. We got De- Doug Moe at one forward, and Julius is going to be at the other forward. And George is saying, well, I'm not going to get to play very much. And Neil Johnson said, well, I'm not going to get to play very much. And Ray Scott said, I'm probably not going to get to play at all. <laughs> so I said, you know, this is my last year. I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm out of here. And then Neil retired not long after me, and George was traded over to Long Island. He played, went up and played with Long Island. And it was interesting because as we came out of that period, I said, well, I'm just going to go to work for the Squires. I, I had a front office job with the Squires. And Earl Lloyd calls me again, brings me back to Detroit. Now, this time I didn't get the apple pile of both because I came back as an assistant coach. Mm. I was second in line to Earl, and he also brought in Bill Russell as an advisor. So I got to listen to two guys that won basketball championships. Get this, in the 1950s. Earl Lloyd won with the Syracuse Nationals champion with Dal Shays and that uh, Larry Costello team and Bill Russell, of course, his, his life is stories. And I'm, I'm again, I'm talking about the queen, talk about royalty. In basketball, that's our royalty, Bill Russell. He is royalty. But I'm with, I'm around these two gentlemen and I tried to listen to everything they said 
about basketball because they were both champions. Little did I know as I was doing that, I was just enjoying myself. I was going to be named coach after seven games. Mr. Zama came in. He sent his uh, uh, emissary, his GM, and he was a great man, Mr. Coyle. They came and he said, Earl, I'm going to get right to the point. You're out, Ray, you're in. And I go, what are you talking about? He says, you're the coach. I said, coach, I don't even, I, I never even, I never wrote a speech. What do you mean? And I just could not believe it. I didn't believe, I don't know what they saw in me, but said that I should be the coach. And so I started coaching and I started thinking about all of these philosophies that I'd learned from coaches and men that I'd been around and particularly Russell and, and, and particularly uh, uh, Lloyd. And I'm, now I'm in the locker room and it's halftime. You know, when they make you the coach, I don't know if you know this, Ron, they don't say like, you take a week and try to figure this out. <laughs> You're coaching tonight. <laughs> you get you got halftime. That's got it. <laughs> what other than giving out the lineup at the beginning? I'm I'm on it. Halftime, I come in the locker room. I'd like to believe we were winning, and I think we were because we did win the game. But I come and I'm going like, what am I going to say? And so I started making notes of what I would say at halftime, and that's that was my halftime speeches on that West Coast trip. Where which we began in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so as I become the coach, I believe in my philosophy, and I have two great players in Bob Lanier and Dave Bing, who are now Hall of Famers. And Dave Bing led the players and said, look, we want to play for this guy. He has a good philosophy. We, we're going to believe in what it is that he wants to do. One of the things that I did is I asked Dave, to not be the number one star anymore. I said, Dave, when we want the game is on the line, we want the ball going to Bob. Can you live with that? Now think of what the answer could have been. And he said, absolutely, right. We got your back. That's why I was coached here. Yeah. Always, when you're somebody, you're somebody because somebody saw something in you that they believed in and they people always helped you. And that was so important. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Yeah. Dave Bing had not taken that stance. But it could have just been another NBA coach hired, coach fired story. Yeah. I'm, an, I'm an NBA coach of the year. When people say that, I appreciate it. But it, I appreciate it. But I, I appreciate it because Dave Bing, Lanier, Curtis Rowe, uh, Chris Ford, Johnny Mengel, George Trapp, guys believed in what I was trying to do. And it, it didn't last long because the thing in professional sports, and it's, it ruins more teams than you can believe, the thing that comes into mind anytime guys start playing better as a group, it's the ugly head will come up and they'll say, we want more money. Mm. And it comes about money rather than the team. What I was trying to teach from Earl Lloyd and Bill Russell, that's put the team first. If the team wins, we'll all get paid. That's a hard, it's easy for you to say, it's hard to get the players to buy into it. And that was a difficult part for me. And that's what I got into the 70s. And then when I left and went to coach in college, that's the, I took that message with me. And then in college, you're not playing 
for money. So they say, unless unless you're playing at UCLA. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I hear you. You know, it's 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 a tough thing. You know, um, you know the parallel for me in in my profession. You know, as as a writer, is that uh, you know I was a, a reporter, and then you did successful as a reporter. So the go, oh, well, let's make this guy a, an editor. You know, right? So, and I'm thinking, okay, all right, but this is about. Then you quickly realize, right? Well, editing is about ten percent of the job. Yeah. Managing these people is the is the job, and it's a whole other thing <laughs> from from writing as as I'm sure coaching is from playing. It's just a it's a hard thing. Yeah, we have that peer inside that world because as. Again, as you're saying, you know, we talk about the Peter principle, you know, as we as we elevate, you know, we take less baggage with us. Mm. You know, we kind of start leaving baggage behind because the of the enormity of the job. And so I got that. Um, and, and, and again, I, I, I know they didn't want to make a bigger mistake and make me a general manager, but I, I left and went to university to do what I love, which was to coach. But when you look at it and you look at the people, I think what you miss the most in editing or in basketball is you, the, what you miss the most is those people you leave behind that supported you. They, they, because our, we had basic philosophies, you believed in me, I believe I could ask you to help me, you know, and so I believed in you. And those types of relationships, they're difficult. But I went into business and I had the same, I, I, I brought that to business. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was happy to hear too that even, even with all these, that, that you, you coach your daughters in basketball, right? That's correct. Oh, <laughs> this time because it was pure coaching. And 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 I, and I say to guys all the time, if you really want to have happiness in coaching, get a girls' team. <laughs> the girls, they only want to learn. When when I walked on a court to coach boys, the boys already thought they had it chapter A through Z. They knew the game. They could dribble between their legs. They could shoot three pointers. They, you know, the only thing, okay, what's our basic philosophy? What's our strategy? But, but girls, they want to know how to dribble. They want to know how to shoot a layup. They want to know the intricacies of shooting free throws. I would get questions like, coach, why do we concentrate on free throws so much? And I said, because 90% of your games are decided at the free throw line. Just watch basketball. 90% of your games. So that's the shot you really want to master. You really want to have that shot down. And we would just practice like that. But it was, and then I was lucky enough, I got to coach my two daughters. I got to coach uh, uh, Allison and, and Devin, my third daughter, Nia, who was the tallest of all three. She chose to run cross country and be a soccer player. Don't ask. <laughs> No, but it. But she was great. She did them. She did them both well. But my daughters that played for me played very well, and I was able to help them. My oldest daughter, she played varsity basketball in high school, but she really didn't 
It wasn't her love. She said, Dad, you love basketball. That little brown ball saved your life. She wrote a paper on it. And mm. she said, this is what saved my dad's life as an as a, as a eight-year-old because his father died when he was eight. And he was he became the caregiver for my little his little brother who was two years old. And so by the time I was twelve and I was outdoors and I was latchkey, a latchkey kid, all of those things came into play of a basketball, a court, a bucket, nets. I, and I picked the ball up and I never put it down. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I appreciate too that you 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 know, you drill the fundamentals like free throws. And obviously, you know, the the fans uh, like me are like, well, you know, how can you miss the free throws when you look at it, basketball games? But then you look at it and you say like, guys, that's one thing. You've got to get those. That You really have to get those. I know you could do those amazing dunks, you know, and alley-oops and that stuff. But, you know, in, in the last 30 seconds of the game, you cannot miss these three free throws. And then you see them and like, what? That's correct. That's correct. And, and that was something that I learned not at an older age, but at a younger age. It was what they call a fundamental. Fund- right. And that was what I took with me my whole life in basketball was the fundamentals. Ergo, that's why I could not coach today, because today's game is not played fundamentally. That's how it's changed. The game today is made for television. It's made for viewing, because now they've taken the worst shot in basketball, and we're literally from the same era. If you or I, you or I, had put up a shot from 25 feet away from the basket, we'd both be sitting over next to the coach. Even if we made it, you know, what are you doing out there? You're going out of your mind. We don't play basketball like that. Well, now they do. And like you, you uh, earlier spoke to the dunks and the, the flamboyance of the game. That's great. But it's still going to come down to something fundamental, a pass, a rebound, or a free throw. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be versed in those fundamentals to do that. And that's, that's what I believe in. But that's the change that I've seen in the game. But I, I try to tell people, enjoy. Right. Enjoy. Something that should be enjoyed. What, if that's what it takes for you to enjoy it, enjoy. Right, right. So listen, right, we're going to uh, have to take another break. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward. We have a much more to talk about in our final segment. So folks, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back with much more from Ray Scott talking about his book, The NBA in Black and White, a memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. So don't go away. We'll be back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. 
You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Of the NBA's Detroit Pistons, author of the fascinating book, The NBA in Black and White, The Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach. Uh, just so you know, it's published by Penguin Random House. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, among other retailers. It's also an ebook, and it's a great book. Um, uh, so, right before the break, we were talking about, you know, what's what's changing in the game. And uh, during the break, actually, we were talking about, you know, the influence on on TV, on the on not only basketball, but professional sports in general. So what's, what are your thoughts about that? And, and then I, w- I want to get into, too, on the issues of money, but also, you know, your contributions uh, in shaping the NBA through the, the players' union. I think for both you and I, coming from the eras that we come from and learning to play in the part first, I think that the big thing that I see today is the athleticism. That's that's a major change there. There are greater athletes, in my opinion, but they're not greater players. Mm. You know, the guys athletic, athletically can do things that probably, uh, you know, being predecessors, their predecessors, we could not do. But we could do so many in terms of impacting the game by the way we knew how to play the game. We were taught the game by you know, great coaches, Lapchick and, and Holtzman and Auerbach. And these guys are great teachers about basketball. It's almost like they learned it right from Dr. Ma- Naismith. And what they didn't learn from Dr. Ma- Naismith, they created. Uh, but these are great people. Johnny McLendon, Big House Gaines, these guys are coaching the African-American schools. And I try to point out in the book how that whole veneer changed over time with those people putting themselves into the kids. Because as a coach, that's what you're supposed to do. And I write about that in the book. 
You're mm-hmm. supposed to your kids. You don't, if you don't really commit your heart and soul to your kids, then you can't expect them to commit their heart and souls to you. And that was, that was something I learned. Right, right. And that's, I think, uh, as translated into the other aspects of your life. You know, I mean, you have, um, you've had, a, um, you know, a, outside of sports, you, you've, uh, in your 45 forward life, you've been involved in business, you've been involved in, um, I guess you were a former ambassador for the children and families, uh, Lutheran Child and Family Services, right? So you, you basically, so you've transitioned a few times, and, and yet you've maintained that heart and soul of, of how you were a player and a coach. Um, so how did sports inform the rest of your life? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it hasn't been of the rest because it never stopped anywhere. I just, the next day I had to go for the next thing. Right. Dad's like always had his hand on my shoulder and said, go here, go there. When I say that, when I tell that story, the story that goes with go here, go there. When I first flew into Detroit back in 1958, because I flew from Portland, Oregon to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I was afraid to fly, but I was at home for Christmas. Then I had to fly back at Christmas time to Portland, Oregon, but I get on a plane in in, uh, Philadelphia and I'm sitting next to a guy by the name of Herb Adderley. Herb Adderley is one of the all-time greatest cornerbacks in the history of football. He played for the great Vince Lombardi. At this time, we're both kids in college. He's going back to Michigan State to play football. I'm going back to Portland to play basketball. Well, we stop in Detroit, and Herb Adderley gets off the plane in Detroit. And this is in the era where you go down the steps and into the station. There's no walkways so that you're in the weather. You're in the weather. And I'm looking at Herb go down the steps. And I'm looking at snow that's about up to his hips. And all I could see was his coat flapping in the breeze. And I remember sitting there looking at her going into the station, to the, uh, the, the door holding it as it's blowing and everything. And I'm looking at this and I said, man, I never want to come to Detroit. <laughs> So now I'm, it's 1961, and I'm in Detroit. And I'm going like, oh, my goodness. And I, again, I go to a club where we're playing basketball in Indiana. I go to a club in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm sitting in this club. And there's one seat empty in the club. That's how crowded it is because the star is Aretha Franklin. I'm 22 years old. My first year in Detroit, she's 19 years old. She's a superstar. And she comes and sits down in that one seat next to me. And she says, hi, I'm Aretha Franklin. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I'm Reese Scott, and I'm a Detroit Piston. And so we're, we're, we're home guys. You know, we're from, I said, I play for the Pistons now. And so we had this wonderful conversation, and we became friends. So as we become friends over the years, by, this is 1961, by 1966, the Pistons decided to trade me. And so my buddies, they heard me talk about Aretha and stuff. He, they said, we're going to take you to see her tonight. She's in town. And uh, we're going to take you to see Aretha. So Eddie Miles and Dave Bing, my teammates, they take me to this club. 
and we're sitting in the club, the aforementioned club, it was a 20 grand, and we're sitting there, and Miss Franklin comes out on stage. And she said, my friends, I just want to introduce my friend Ray Scott to you. He's in the audience tonight, but he's been traded to the Baltimore Bulls. And I want to dedicate this song to him. And it's called, You're Gonna Hear From Me. Think about that song. I go on my way to Baltimore. I thank Miss Franklin, of course. And I go on my way to Baltimore. In 1974, I'm standing at midcourt with this huge trophy that they've given me for the NBA Coach of the Year. Remember that song Aretha Franklin had? I thought of it. You're going to hear from me. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love it that actually we began the segment by talking about, you know, not thinking about like retiring from basketball because life is just one chapter after the other. And I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, uh, uh, before we go, we, we have a, a few minutes, but I wanted to, to talk about, you know, the players union and just, and how that affected the game. And, um, and, and just, you know, again, how you saw that related to, you know, the continued uh, process of integration of the, of the league. Yeah, the, yeah, the integration was early. The NBA's never, they may have a problem, but they don't live with it long because they get everybody around the table to discuss it and see what can be resolved. Uh, in 1947, they were segregated. In 1950, three years later, integrated. And then they had this thing where, you know, two or three players to a team, uh, because who's going to go see African-Americans play? because they tried it with Earl Lloyd, Sweetwater Clifton, and uh, Chuck Cooper, Boston, the Knicks, and, and, uh, and uh, it was that time Washington with Earl. Well, those guys, nothing happened. The glass didn't shatter. They were, and they were good players on championship teams. So all of a sudden, NBA players started being drafted, as I indicated earlier. Oscar, Maurice Stokes, Elgin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain, mm -hmm. these great players, and people wanted to see who these guys were. So it was just the opposite of what people predicted. Spectators started coming out and began to love sport. So that started the, the wheel turning, but it and then it turned up to uh Kazzy Russell from the University of Michigan in New York, and then Bill Bradley from Princeton in New York. And so all of a sudden, New York gets these two great All-Americans, and everybody in, in New York said, we want to see these guys. And so it's now the wheel is turning, and you guys in the I remember coming to New York, the Knicks were all over the place. Because then you get this guy that no one knows anything about from, uh, from uh, Grambling by the name of Willis Reed. And he's playing with the superstars. He's playing with the Chamberlains and the Russells and the Thurmans. They go like, who's this guy, Willis Reed? He's playing along. Then they said, well, we got one other one for you now. Now we keep picking up a guy named Walt Frazier, Clyde. And the rest is history. Right, right. So that's for the mecca of basketball. But the change in the whole of the country for basketball took place 
with Burr and Magic. Mm -hmm. One in Boston and one in L.A. And television has never looked back since those two kids. Right. Right. To to basketball and entertainment that was built upon by Michael Jordan and and, uh, Drexler and Barkley and these uh, Elijah Wan, just great players. And the NBA got to the, st- the stage where not only were guys, not only were guys making money and they were getting serious money, but we were on television every day of the week. And that came about because of a guy by the name of Oscar Robertson. In 1966, I was at his elbow as one of the guys in the room. He was Oscar was our president. Walt Bellamy, Ray Scott, uh, who else? I I think a stiff was there. But there were a group of players of us in the room. Archie Clark. And I remember how steeled we were to try to get this association, to get this union. Because remember, I'm living in Detroit. Right. all unions and I'm I, I got Oscar's back on this. Oscar sat down. They would not let us bring our attorney into the room. Mm-hmm. And Oscar sat down and looked six NBA owners right in the eye. And at the end of the day, the NBA owners said, "You guys got to have this union, and we'll try to work as hard as we can to get you certified." All our accommodations improved. Remember, we weren't flying first class. We weren't sleeping in king-size beds. So all of those things took place. And by 1970, Oscar had us certified as an NBA Players Association and Union. Right. You know, unfortunately, we're coming to a close, Ray. I, I, um, I'm sad. <laughs> I'd like to keep going. Uh, I just wanted to mention one thing and, and before we close, and that is just that, you know, I found it interesting that, you know, in, in both in basketball and, and baseball uh, and in, um, in football, it was um, black players who basically led the movement for equity for all the players. Yes. And so the white players benefited from from all of the activities that that, that the unions were involved in. So, you know, I, it's just sort of an interesting, um, you know, twist for me, but uh, uh, so listen, I, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate this conversation today. And uh, if, if you missed it, you can still listen to it at voiceamerica.com and, um, and you'll, you can hear Ray on my 45 forward podcast. Um, and and uh, be sure to join me next Monday at 12 noon Pacific and 3 p.m. Eastern when I'll be talking with Kathy Stokes, the head of the AARP's Fraud Watch Network, about the latest wave of fraud and what we can do about it. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to once again extend my heartfelt thanks for Ray, and um, I'll, I'll be sure to have a, another conversation with him soon. But uh, in the meantime, folks, um, until then, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.
again for listening.